with all these illnesses where everyone always talks about, well, what can I say to make it better? I'm probably nothing. I'm telling you now. There's nothing you can really say that's going to make it better. And a lot of the time, someone has to have that realisation that they've, they're going through something. And I think that's what people expect that they can say something to help them where what the problem is in society is that people are waiting too long to know how to manage their mental health. And by the time you get up to year eight, nine, ten, there's not a lot people can say. Hi, Hurt to Healing listeners, and welcome back to season four with me, Pandora Morris. I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years, and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations, and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. Today, we are honored to be joined by a remarkable guest who's on a mission to transform the way we perceive and address mental health. Danny Gray, the founder of Jack, J-A-A-Q, and Warpaint for Men, has a story that resonates deeply with so many. His struggle with body dysmorphia, particularly regarding his ears and his hair, began during his teenage years, casting a long shadow over his self-esteem and mental well-being. Today, Danny joins us to share his inspiring journey of resilience. He reveals how he manages his mental health now, providing valuable insights for those facing similar challenges. But Danny's story goes beyond his personal struggle. It's about turning pain into purpose. Through Jack, Danny is on a mission to educate and empower individuals about mental health and disorders like body dysmorphia. He knows firsthand the transformative impact of awareness and understanding. In this episode, we'll explore the reasons behind his passion for this cause and why he believes that education is so essential. So if you're ready to be inspired by a mission for societal change, this episode is the one to listen to. So will you start off by telling us what was your experience of life as a young boy? Jack the lad at school, good enough upbringing. Mum and dad split up when I was six. Uh, didn't really affect me though, if I'm honest. It was hard at the time. Got to like 12 at school, bit of a Jack the lad, captain of all the sports teams and stuff like that. And then... I was literally on the playground one day at 12, not caring the world, never cared about my appearance. And literally turned around, there was three lads on the playground and they started uh, flapping their ears at me and singing the R. Kelly song, I believe I can fly. But look, the reason they did that is because my ears were right angles to my head, literally right angles. And I'd never even noticed my ears until that second. So I can remember getting home that day and I looked in the mirror and they did stick out. So that balloon only happened for like two weeks, but that was it for me. So... I didn't realise at the time, but at 12, like within three, four months, I had my ears pinned back on the NHS. So that shows that my mum was so concerned about the way I was acting to go through a cosmetic procedure. Young, but then after I had my first procedure done, because I've had it done twice, they were that bad. Um, I could laugh about it now, right? After my first procedure, I went to secondary school, never bullied. And in secondary school, because I was quite good at sport, I was into those crowds, didn't, I think it bullied and... I enjoyed secondary school actually, but in the back of my head, like just my mental health was gradually getting worse and worse about my appearance. So it moved on to other things. And you've also spoken about being dyslexic. How did that play a role? Yeah. So 
I was never diagnosed at school, but I was left-handed and dyslexic. So it was a double whammy. And I could always just, in my head, I was, I think there's a lot of things about education now and, you know, managing to people's strengths. So when I was at school, sport very good. I was really good at maths, could just do it without trying. Couldn't do fractions, uh, like percentages in my head without really having to try, where coming to English, I really struggled with it. And, but so what I had to do, what they would do to me is pull me in a lesson this is why I think there's a massive disparity. Like I would not concentrate on what I was good at. And I think a lot of people then go, okay, well, you're good at maths. Don't double down on that. Right, really need to focus on your English. So I'd have, I'd have to have private lessons at lunchtime. And the first six, five, six lessons was how I hold a pen right. Because when you're left-handed, you cup, right? And that's what I used to do. So I can just remember in these lessons, I had a rubber on my pencil and they were holding my hand straight. Let alone could I not spell, I was concentrating so much on holding the pen. And then trying to spell, I just see it was a disaster for me. So, yeah, I've always, I've always struggled with spelling, even now, if I ask any of my team, I'll just shout it out, right? And just say, how do you spell this? And it can be the most there, there, there. Just It just doesn't go in. So the combination of the bullying, the BDD and the dyslexia, do you think that had an impact on your self-confidence as a boy? Um, yeah, like, I didn't notice it until older, if I'm honest, because like 12, 16, secondary school, it, it hit it a little bit because, because sport was so important then and I was in the right crowds, which sounds really bad. Um, so my confidence was all right at the school. Dyslexia didn't really bother me because I excelled at quite a few other things. So it was just like, okay, I'm all right at English. So it wasn't really that. It was it was later on after school that it really started affecting me when, you know, getting to 15, 16, when you really, for me, that's when I cared about my appearance, getting spots, caring about my hair. And then I used to grow my hair in front of my ears. So I had literally like two strands of hair, not strands, but bulk of hair in front of my ears. And I can just all, all the time, all I do is put gel on them and pull, pull them over my ears. I think people underestimate body dysmorphia and quite what a preoccupation it is. So how was it affecting you? You say about putting your hair over your ears, but it's more than that, isn't it? You're constantly looking at yourself in reflections, in mirrors, in yeah. spoons, and I mean, anything, you're just like obsessing the whole time. Yes, yeah, so body dysmorphia disorder stands, it's BDD in short, and that can be just compulsion or illness where you're obsessed about the way you look. And look, that could be anything, general appearance, it could be your clothes. Like people have BDD about their wrists, right? A certain piece of their body they're not happy with. So mine was my ears, but then it, it, what happens and then we morphs into other stuff. So my, my ears were a big focus for me. But then obviously when I get spots, because I'm just conscious about looking at myself all the time and not liking my ears, if I got a spot, it was a big deal for me, really big deal. And then that gradually got worse and worse over time to go on to other things. I had my, my ears pinned back again when I was 19. My mum used the life savings, bless her. That's all she had because at 19, it was just, it was unbearable, right? And I had them pinned back. And this is actually a bit bizarre, not bizarre. So I had them pinned back for a second time. They're how they are now, right? It's pretty, you would never know. They're, I don't want to say they're perfect because they're not, but like, I'm very happy. I went back to that private surgeon again about five months later and I literally went on one back further. And if you look at my ears now, it's like, and he literally, uh, he did something to me that I'll, I'll remember forever. He put me in front of the mirror and he pushed my ears to the back of my head and they literally disappeared, right? And he said, that is what's going to happen, Dan. He says, that's not natural. He said, they're perfect where they are. He says, what you've got to learn is that seven years you've been obsessing about your ears. You've just had the surgery. Your mind's not going to overcome that in six months. And I was a bit like, wow, powerful. Went away and just put up with it. And thank God I didn't go through with that procedure. And sometimes people go down that that slippery slide so yeah it, it moved on to many things and it could take me God, hours to get ready and look I can remember look I'm just be frank right I used to go to parties family parties and 
I've never really spoke about this before, but I will on this podcast. Um, a lot of positioning within my family, I think my older generation, like my nan and stuff like that, they were very wowed by Eton. The public but, school Eton, yeah. Yeah, and talked about, well, the, the grandson goes to Eton, they all go to Eton, they do this, they do that. It was very little about... And I felt a little bit like, oh, fucking hell, well, what am I? And, I, and that is another thing, then my mental health about not believing you're good enough. And then when I went to a party, anything anyone mentioned about me was just the way I looked. Like even comments, well, you're the best looking one. And so it was a double compound for me where I'll be obsessed about the way I looked. And then when I was going out, that just compounded into my head, like you need to look perfect mm. when I'm going to these parties, especially family for some reason for me, because I thought that's all I had. So... It's interesting. It's so interesting because I relate to it so much as, you know, I myself suffered with anorexia and I don't think you ever get to the point of being fully confident in your body. And I think a lot of people who are recovering from eating disorders definitely have a semblance of BDD. It might not be diagnosed, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I still obsess about body parts and my body's changed immensely in the last several years. And I think, again, going back to family, if you have the reputation of, oh, you know, you're the attractive one, you've got this vision in your head, I've got to stay this way. Like I've got everything rests on me being this way. And you sort of get these expectations in your head of what you've got to, you know, keep the bar at this level. And if it falls for some reason, everything else is going to fall to pieces and your whole world is just going to collapse around you. Absolutely. And then, so for me, it would be like my hair then become a big thing. So I had my ears been back again when I was 19, had my hair cut short for the first time on the sides, liked it. And then how my hair looked, I could literally be in the, I don't know, two hours, three hours in the mirror, mm-hmm. doing my hair, like redoing it. Perfect, right? Perfect. It looks great. Like, not that it looks great. I didn't think about it. I was like, okay, now it looks, and I was trying to explain this before to someone, like I could flick one bit of hair and I'm like, right, that's it. Right, look in the mirror. Right, great. And then what I consciously do then is I can't look in another mirror for the rest of the day or the night. And if I did, sometimes I'd like, I'm pulling myself now because it's making me feel anxious. And that's what I'd do. I'd rip t-shirts off. But I would probably, I'd, I could walk past the mirror and then just catch it. And then I'd go, oh, have a quick look and then go in. And then I'm like, no, 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 something's changed. And then that's it. Routine goes again. So yeah, it, it was, it was, I'll be honest, but 21, 22, like no one knew from the outside. People close to me knew, but it just gradually got worse and worse till I got to about 28. And I was, I, I literally got out in the car one day after work, I looked in the rearview mirror and I thought I was losing my hair. There was literally a gap here, but it was my natural hairline. And if you see from what I'm a fan, I'm very fortunate. Everyone's got a good head of hair, even no matter how old they are. But that was it for me for two years, every minute of every day. And I can't exaggerate it enough. It started like just checking it, checking it, checking it then researching it, then watching every video on it. How much hair should I be losing? And when you look at me now, my hair, people say, oh, that's ridiculous. But it got to the point after two years, I can't tell you. I'll be speaking to someone just looking at the hairline. With videos, the TV, I was looking at how old are they, how much hair have they lost? I wonder if it's that me. And it was exhausting. So then drink came in, I was going out a lot, drugs, like going out all the time. And people say you do it to hide, and you do. And I know I never really noticed that. I know I'm going to get upset because... You know, when you're in that moment, like everything goes out the window because it was just all I focused on. Like, and no one knows how bad it is in your head. And that's what propelled me to like have that breakdown. And that's what the problem in society is, is that the average length is 10 years of when someone first feels something, average to 10 years. So when they first feel something wrong to when they actually reach out, and that's the problem in society. And everyone's based on this crisis moment up here. That ain't the problem. It's about people a year into this journey, two years, who ain't, by the way, as much as we say we need to talk, they're not going to. And I'm sick of that message. Remember, reach out, speak to someone. 
What was the most helpful thing that people like friends and family did at that time? I mean, and what would you say to people now who have a loved one who's struggling? I mean, what kind of comments are unhelpful and what is helpful? Well, body dysmorphia, it was, oh, you look great. You know, and, that, and look, I'd use my mum example all the time as I used to come downstairs, 1920, and I'm struggling. And what happens, you, you don't know how it builds, doesn't it? Like, I'm sure you feel, it'll build, it'll build. And what, I'll just get into this repetitive mode. Like, if I change once or twice, I'm changing five times. And then I'll come downstairs and I'll be ripping my T-shirts off, punching holes. At the beginning, my mum's like, you look amazing. You always do look great. You're always doing it. My mum, like, you have no idea. And eventually, my mum will be sat there just saying nothing. And she'll have more anxiety than I do about getting ready. That's not fair. Well, my mum, but she hasn't, she's not educated. Where does she go to get the right information? Obviously, you said about eating disorders. Professor Janet Treasure, she's on my Jack platform. She's unbelievable. Went for dinner with her. She says to me, the most important thing is not the person getting therapy. It's the five people around them getting the right information on how to support them. And I agree. And so for me, it wasn't a case of people telling me you look great. It was like what we learned was that we just have to stop or just say, Dan, just stop, take a break for 15 minutes. Like, don't try and overcompensate. Like, you look amazing. Oh, that top's really nice. Just say, why don't you just stop 15 minutes? Don't worry if you're late. doesn't matter. Don't go out, Dan, if you feel like this. Very different because then for me, that's my own personal experience is just stopping and I'd do it now, right? I'd a row with my, no, I don't even say like, I've never had a row with this person in my life. And I had a row with them recently. And I went home, I'm talking like the last few days, 38 years, never had a row. I had a massive row. I went home and the first thing I did was have a shower because I was hot. I had my hair cut that day. I was in the mirror for 45 minutes playing with my hair. And I had to snap out and be like, I could be there for four hours. And that's what happens. Like you just got to learn to understand when you're in that. And the other thing for me, with all these illnesses, we everyone always talks about, well, what can I say to make it better? And probably nothing. I'm telling you now. There's nothing you can really say that's going to make it better. And a lot of the time, someone has to have that realization that they've, they're going through something. And I think that's what people expect that they can say something to help them where what the problem is in society is that people are waiting too long to know how to manage their mental health. And by the time you get up to year eight, nine, ten, there's not a lot of people can say. I yeah. Again, like you know, with my OCD, for example, when friends used to ring me and say, "Are you still spending six hours a day in the gym? It's ridiculous." I would, you know, they're shaming you and they're judging you. And actually, the best thing you, say, as you say rightly, say is that people just they give you space. They just say, I'm here. And I remember the first time a friend just said to me, you do you. I don't judge your food. If you need to exercise for six, seven hours a day, do you know what? I'm still your friend. I still love you because the essence of you is, is what I love. And that's not going to change if you give into compulsions, if, you like, if you're restricting your food. Obviously, I care about you and I want the best for you. But it's when people impose that you just always feel bashed when you're suffering from a mental health issue because it's almost like everyone in society feels like they can give you their sort of ounce of opinion or pound of flesh and exert that control and power which again as you say just triggers you and makes you retreat into the illness even more because it's all you know as you said you know when you feel anxious you know you start obsessing about your hair again same with me when I get anxious I obsess about my food and my exercise and new things which is for me a trigger but yeah I don't think that there is anything anyone can say or do no and what you just said is like so powerful because I had that what happened to me once where I used to try and get rid of my best mates. I'll be a disaster. Like they're all around my ass or downstairs waiting for me. And then the cabs come in. That's a disaster because time was a nightmare. So nine o'clock is coming down. Nine o'clock is half eight. I'm nowhere near ready. And they were like, Dan, Dan, cabs come in five minutes. Cabs come in. One they understood the reaction was, Dan, take as long as you need, mate. We'll book a cab when you're ready. 
I'll get ready yeah. in 15 minutes. And it's just those little things. You don't actively have to tell someone how to get better. So will you tell us about wall paint and what inspired yeah. you to start that? Okay, well, I'll touch on it earlier, right? So 15, 16 spots was a nightmare for me. I turned to my sister. She came in and gave me a concealer, put it on. And I was like, oh my God. I couldn't believe like, how easy it was, how quick and all of a sudden like, that fear of my skin, I didn't have to manage it as much because I knew there was something I could use like at all. So I just started wearing makeup, especially going out. And then it just, I started wearing it like not every day, but a lot, right? And it was just something I didn't have to worry about my skin, which was a massive thing for me. And then I wore it for, well, 38 now, I've been wearing it for 22 years. I've always been quite entrepreneurial. So I had a bouncy castle company when I was 16. I didn't even, I didn't even drive. Uh, I used to take it around in a wheelbarrow around my village. And then I got, look, got 20, I had my sort of breakdown or whatever it is. And then always had a, I had a corporate career quite successful, but always had this vision of making them. I tried other brands and other things, but the men's makeup, I always kept saying there must be a brand that the brands had come out and I was like, they're not doing it the right way. It's not how I would do it. And for anyone listening who wants to start a business, you don't always have to create something out of nothing. You can always take something and make it better. And that's what I kept saying to myself, like, oh, I'll do it this way, I'll do it that day. Way. And I was on the golf course one day, my best mate said, stop talking about it, do it. And I literally, I, I couldn't think of anything else from that second onwards. So started wall painting in 2017, used my life savings, which wasn't a lot, it was 18 grand, uh, remortgaged my house. And what I did first was test, right? So bought some really bad products in from China, put a really bad badge on it, um, named it wall paint, put a um, basic website out, Got seven orders in a day. So I was like, right, stop. Went away raising some capital. Uh, and then I formulated my own makeup and launched it back in 2018. And it was just a whirlwind for about four or five years. And what's what's going on with wall paint now? So over those four or five years, like it's, it's been an incredible journey. What I was trying to do though, was, you've got to imagine like men's makeup, right? I hate this word stigma, it's attached to it. So I had to educate or re-educate people on what I thought men's makeup was. It wasn't taking 45 minutes. Like I've seen other brands that were taking 45 minutes to do someone's makeup with a makeup artist. I was like, no, 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 I'd, I'd educate them to do it in two minutes. Using different masculine guys, formulating the product. So it was matte finish. It was very lightweight. It had no floral smell in it. So it went well. I was like, we went viral on Twitter three months after launching. In three months, sorry, four months, we turned over 200 grand and sold 13,000 products. And I thought it was not in a, in a flat in Watford. I was picking and packing orders. It was bizarre. I thought it was normal, but obviously it wasn't. Went viral on TikTok. Uh, sorry, TikTok, Twitter. Eight million views, trended number one in the world. Negative. So I was on ABC News, Good Morning America, like every news. But they were, they were basically saying it's toxic masculinity and stuff like that because it was the same thing that's always happened for 20 years. Men shouldn't wear makeup. And we, it was women saying, this is embarrassing, you shouldn't do that. But what I hadn't done was really talked about my story. It was all much about focus on the brand. So we went viral on the Tuesday, May the 9th. I know because it was my sister's birthday. So we were out for dinner that night when it went viral, which was a disaster because they, like my phone's blowing up and I'm thinking everything's died. But then on the Thursday, I was filming Dragon's Den. So I went up and filmed Dragon's Den on the Thursday and I traveled on the Wednesday night and I had to pull over in my car to do interviews to America. And then I, then I pitched on the Thursday, came out three months later, went really well, got loads of press. When I like, man, when John Lewis first ever men's makeup counter in the world that went viral. I was on, we filmed it all. I was on Sky, like BBC. That happened. Opened the first ever men's makeup store in the world on Carnaby Street in London. I got a load of media. Just launched across Superdrug, launching in JCPenney in America. I was in Switzerland. We launched across Switzerland, Australia. 
so it's, it's gone really well. Hasn't made me rich, but look, our, all I care about was that we made us. I think we made an impact in people's lives. A lot of people might laugh about that, but the messages I would get would make you cry. There's one story that I always I haven't really told about before where mum messages in saying, I've got a 16 year old son, he's got rosacea and he won't even have his photo taken. What He's so conscious about it. I've tried to get him to use female makeup, but he just won't. He's seen your brands. He thought it was really cool. He tried it and she sent me a picture of him. Yeah, I you mean, know. it's moments like that when you realise what you're doing is so worthwhile and is touching people's lives in a way that, you know, making millions just, you know, won't. Yeah, I'm going to get, and we get lambasted for it and people say, take the piss out of it, but I don't care because that's not my audience. And I think a lot of people get hooked up on that with social, building a brand. People can have their views, but that's healthy. And like, like people saying horrible things. I'm like, all right, well, you can say what you want, but I know there's this audience. Like we went viral on Twitter. It was unbelievable, the comments. Unbelievable. But then we did record sales, you know? So that's what we focused on. But what I was getting was a lot of messages from people about mental health, because my story then became very central yeah. in the press. What I wanted to do was create some, because I talked about using a product as a tool, but it didn't fix it. So I wanted to create a brand. So I'm selling makeup, but I don't want that to be a tool to think that fixes everything. Mm -hmm. You've got to get your mind right. So that's why I come up with the concept of uh, Jack. Yeah, so before we get on to Jack, I'm curious about how it was being a man in that space, because being a man and openly discussing you know, BDD and also being a man and having a makeup brand, how was that for you, outing yourself in a way? At the beginning... I hid away from it. I was embarrassed a little bit. So I created war paint and I kept very back from it, right? I didn't tell my friends about it. Close friends knew, right? But like out of circle. And that's the other thing for me. I was worried about people. You know, when you go in somewhere and there's a group of people, you've got your close mates or everything. And then there's these other people you know. And you're like, all right, mate. You know, chat. All right. I care more about what they thought. Mm -hmm. And do you know how much they think about me? Not one minute of the day. And that's the one, and I was so conscious about them, I, I shied away from it until my brain flipped to like, I, we went viral, nothing happened. All right, it got bad press, but it carried on. Dragon's Den, then we got a lot of support. And it was tough, but what I think was quite good from my perspective, I came into a market where a lot of people start brands in the beauty sector who come from the beauty sector. So you're blinkered a little bit in where you think the brand should position or what the business should be. Well, I, I, I had no idea about the beauty space. So we were doing stuff that people were, you know, getting attention for because it was very different. So it was difficult at the beginning, but as soon as my mindset flipped to the only people I care about are the people around me and they are my bestest mates, your mindset is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And that is just, I can't say the powerful. Once you forget all these messages you got on Instagram or whatever, people taking the piss out of it, ugh, like as soon as you can just block that or just say, well, I don't really care about that or people you don't even care about and you're worried about what they're saying about you behind your back, that makes you a superman, I'm telling you, if you don't care. Like, I cared about my family, I cared about what people thought, I don't know. So I, I love what I do every day. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So will you tell us about Jack and what was sort of the birth of that like? And yeah. So I was getting loads of messages from people. I was in calls late at night with customers from more pain. It could be a mum asking me to speak to her son about hair loss, a son about confidence. It was a mum about some of whatever or 
boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend reached out to me on Instagram and said, can you speak to us? My son, my, sorry, my boyfriend's just been diagnosed with BDD and we don't know where to turn. So I was like, cool, so I had a Zoom, probably the worst thing you could ever do. Uh, it was a Friday night. I was in my little office in back garden and this guy was sat with his missus. His missus was in front of him. So he was in bits. He was where I was when I was 28. And for, I felt so sorry for him. And then all they were doing was asking me, like just general, I can't upset, right? Because there's so many people out there like this. He was just, they were just saying that he's hit crisis, he wants to kill himself. Good looking lad, tick. He went to the doctor and they said, you've got BDD. You've got to be referred to a specialist on the NHS. He's hit crisis. He wants to kill himself. 36 week lead time. And they're like, we just didn't know. We don't know where to go. We've tried to research stuff. It's just difficult. And then she would say stuff. She said something to me, that question you asked me before, like I tell him all the time, he looks great. I was like, I'll be honest, it's probably the worst thing you could have said to me. And he was just sat behind his side nodding. And she just was a bit in shock. I told her why the reasons and just gave some advice from my personal experience. And then she messaged me the next day saying, you have no idea. So my head was flying about just the lack of information, how you receive it. Because the only two things you've got at the minute are Google and TikTok, biggest two search engines in the world. As much as they try and adapt their foot. Google's a nightmare because it's text-based. It's not how people digest information. Or you look at social media, it's gone from Facebook to Instagram. What is it now? TikTok. People don't digest content via text. And then TikTok now... <sighs> Good platform, but for what it's for, it shouldn't be getting into the world of mental health mm -hmm. and giving advice and stuff like that. And then I came up, well, what about if we could record them? What about if it was like this? And then literally, I couldn't sleep that night. Um, it was a Saturday and a half one in the morning, Mrs. just said, just go downstairs. And I just literally, I'm on my sofa, came up with a bit of an idea. And I said, for me, I just needed a name. And I started going through names. And I was like, well, what are you doing? You're just asking a question. And I was like, J-A-Q. I said, I'm pretty sure that's Jack. J-A-Q. So I pulled my phone up and I literally went on my GoDaddy account, put in Jack and .co.uk was available. So I ran around find my credit card, bought it, the domain name. I was like, right, I've got a name. Right, okay, cool, we can do something. Called up Ash, who was with me at Warpaint, who was my content guy, like my right-hand man. And I was like, listen, first thing, it was seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. He was like, what's happened? I said, listen, listen, because I've talked about this idea with him. I was like, listen, listen, what, if I say J-A-A-Q, just pronounce it, he's dyslexic. He went, Jack? I went, fucking hell. I went, listen to this, and I got the website out. And that's how literally the idea was was born on that day. So will you tell us about Jack? I mean, it's become the most incredible platform with some unbelievably profound names and extraordinary people who have suffered, as well as doctors and professors who you know, have a wealth of knowledge behind them. So, yeah, tell us about it. Okay, yeah, so Jack stands for Just Ask a Question. It's www.jack.org. It's a free platform you come to and we've filmed top experts like world-leading doctors, celebrities, people with lived experience where you can literally go on and you can select a question and get the right information. For example, talking about eating disorders, Professor Janet Treasure, she's just been classed as the world leader by the government on eating disorders, which is incredible. She's answering, I think it's 160 questions on eating disorders. And what I'm so passionate about, if we can give people the right information at an early stage, not just about people going through it, but the people supporting them, which you touched on earlier, a mum, a dad, whoever, you get the right information, it is groundbreaking. Even those doctors, the reason they joined the journey and came on, because they said the first three therapy sessions, nothing to do with diagnosis. It's just information given. Because what happens when you go to therapy? First of all, you shit yourself. You don't want to talk. You don't take in a lot of information. So it's just repetitive. What this is, what are you, how are you feeling? This is what it is. This is how it can act. 
And I just came up with that idea about giving information free. So we launched a very basic site. It was only me and two other people working on it. Can you savings to do it? And we managed to launch it on the one show. And this was a year and a half ago, really basic website. We got 14,000 visits on the first night and I literally got 400 emails. And I was reading through the emails and it was like, can you do this? Can you do PTSD? So we launched it on the one show. And then I, again, a bit like Warpaint, right? I got the feedback that people like the approach. I was like, right, I've got to do it properly. So I went and raised a load of capital. Um, and we relaunched it back in November. I want to be the Google of mental health or even better than that, I want to be the Red Bull of mental health. What's it been like being a dad? I genuinely think it's why I was put on the planet. I'm by no means perfect as a dad, but you know, I've learned a lot through growing up when mum and dad split up when I was young, my mum has some very violent relationships, like a lot of domestic abuse, quite severe. And it shaped me, but look, it's hard though, because I've still had moments when I'm really bad, when my stress and anxiety is up. And I used to be a lot worse about a year ago. I've changed a lot in the last year. So that's the other thing people see from the outside, like Warpaint and Jack, like he's, he's cracked it. Fucking hell, I haven't. Trust me, every day. But I'm, I swear, sat here today, right this second, I'm the strongest I've ever been in my life. And that's because every day I'm learning, every day, I, and I feel more resilient. But a year, two years ago, Warpaint, Jack, all at the same time was very stressful, raising money. And I can remember seeing my son worrying about himself, how he looked, which is... It's probably the hardest thing I've ever seen because like doing his hair and stuff in the mirror, he's only six because, you know, they see what you're doing or saying about it like, oh, I'm fat and he's not. And that's just because I see that he see that in me and I really try hard not to be that because I've talked about it before, but it's really difficult for mental health because when you're in that frame of mind, everything goes out the window. And sometimes it's really difficult when your kids are playing they haven't got a clue to hide it, but it can change the way you act in front of them, which is just tough sometimes. So Danny, what are your current triggers? What triggers are you still today? <sighs> stress. And what I mean by stress is in the last, I'll be honest, the last, it's, it's weird, last six months, I'm so strong at the minute with my mental health. I've not really had too many bad situations because I'm learning to manage it. But before like stresses at work, like a great example, right? Argument with someone, which was very traumatic for me. I went and started playing any sort of trauma or stress major stress if i'm going out that weekend i'm getting ready three or four times but i've i've learned i've learned to spot those because i can just see it straight away. i did like the other day for example I had a massive argument with someone i would never have an argument with got home i was flustered i was hot I had a shower and i'm literally in the mirror for 20 i'm not even going anywhere playing with my hair are you able to resist those triggers ever, ever if you're feeling sort of <laughs> strong no no i don't think i ever will it's just how you manage those triggers and then knowing you. Do you know what it is sometimes for me, knowing that, that that's happening, then I could stop it instantly. Yeah. Do you see, that is the power of me now where before I wouldn't. And then I would fixate and I wouldn't do anything about it. And then the next morning going to work, anything I wear, don't like it. Because clothes are a nightmare for me as well. It could be anything, stress, but it's just, I, will, I think I'm always going to be triggered. Always. I'm never going to be perfect. I'm always going to go back to my BDD. Always. But I've just learned that when I am starting, I can now turn it off quite easily, whether before I can. Yeah, again, I think that's something that I definitely experience. It's like with the OCD, I know that I'm going to be triggered, but the compulsion might last for five minutes rather than five hours now. And Manageable, right? Yeah. And that's the difference. Is exactly. It, are you ever going to be cured and not have it? For me, not. 
but it's about what you say. It's five minutes rather than three fucking hours. If you think two years ago, I was like that, but it's very rare now. And that's because I've learned how to manage my mental health, tip things. Through. And look, we talk about mental health as an illness, but like what I'm passionate about Jack is it's not an illness on that platform. You can talk, you can go into depression, anxiety, body dysmorphia, OCD, but it's all different lifestyle things on there. That resilience, um, sleep, you know, this is what I'm talking about. When I'm passionate about mental health, the reason mine's improved so much is because if you do these things like sleep a certain amount of a day, right, get up at the same time, right, I have a cold shower every morning. All these little things help you manage these bigger situations. And I just think people in this rut where they're here in terms of they're struggling with something, maybe not even an illness, and they think you've got to make this big jump. All it is is small wins every day. And that, do you see what I'm saying? Like these tools, people don't talk about them as much as like, you need to get therapy, you need to get better. It's about, why won't you try something? Is it yoga? Is it uh, acupuncture? I don't know. Is it cold swimming every morning? Just something that makes you, give you that dopamine hit that makes you manage stuff. Yeah, it's marginal gains. I completely agree. Just learning slowly how your brain works and that you just need to peak that yeah, well, dopamine. It's absolutely. Not. And like we talk, I just think when people should be working on their mental health, I use this example, a salesman, right? 24, flying at work, hitting all his targets and in loads of money, in a really good position in life. That is when you need to implement things for your mental health, yeah, right? Do I, now, right, physically I'm doing the gym every day, playing football, I, that's when people start managing their mental health then rather than at this crisis point when they are good in their life put stuff in for your mind because that's the easiest time to do it how do you encourage people who are afraid of speaking out about their mental health just do it when you're ready because I think there's too much pressure on speak out every message you see is that we need to talk every campaign is we need to talk I had it for 20 years we get that message get it if you took pulled everyone in the room, 100 people, what's the most important thing for mental health? We need to talk, but people aren't doing it. So we need to transition from that message to understanding and education, what works for you. But the thing is for me is the crisis in, this, in the whole thing of mental health is not the people actually reaching out to people not. They're the people who are in real bad position. They're the people taking their lives. So Calm Campaign Against Living Miserably, the call centre, uh, it, it costs a lot of lots of millions to run 180 full-time staff five to 12 it's getting worse more calls are coming in that is not the fear for me the fear is the people not calling yeah i mean i think like, it's the latest statistic is that one in four adolescents are now suffering with mental health yeah but what, what we're doing at the minute society is not working so i'm so passionate i'm not saying jack can change the world education information giving it the right way let them take it in let them make a decision what they want to try this podcast you're doing is about my story. Mm. So people will take something from this, listen to it, maybe implement it, or go, actually, I'll try that. Mm. And that might help them. And amount of people say, I've listened to your story and it's made me do this. Mm. All right. Is that not the solution? Is that not part of a solution in this crisis point? Up here, everyone's focused on, I'm very passionate about like the problem here in the NHS and overwhelmed. That's not going to get better unless we do this. And that message of we need to talk. I do get it. People aren't going to judge you. There's going to be more support than you can imagine if you reach out. And by the way, everyone is affected by mental health. Every person. We talk about illness up here is like the main driver. But I'm telling you now, everyone on the planet suffers with their mental health. Everyone. In some way, right? That's the other thing about it is this stigma. And that's why with Jack, as much about the platform, I talked about the Red Bull of mental health earlier. 
if I said to you, tell me a cool brand in mental health, cool, I'm talking like Apple, I'm talking like Red Bull, can't pick one. That is the problem. People don't change the world. Product doesn't change the world. A brand will change the world. But this message at the end is, we know it's hard, the hard to talk. Now you don't have to. And it's Jack, right? That is, that is my brand in essence. Make it fucking fun. Problem is two 50-year-old blokes in a pub, right? Talking about eating disorders. Let's use that as an example. And they eventually have a chat about it over a pint. You right, mate? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure my son, like, he's just eating nothing. Like, I don't know what's going on with him. Like, I just won't eat anything. The mate to that should not know, not need to know what to say. But imagine him going, like, these are like geezers, right? Imagine him going, where's he going to send them now? That mate. Imagine you create a brand that's cool, fun. Like, mate, have you seen that Jack platform? Got all these cool people on it. They talk about everything on there. Check it out. I think they've got something on there about eating disorders. Go and check it out. That changing the world. Yeah. Not here's a leaflet for a service. And that's what I'm passionate about because that person then giving that to that person as well, do you reckon they're going to take that leaflet and go, I'll tell you what, that looks really interesting. Exactly. So Danny, to finish, what advice would you give for those who are suffering with BDD and know that they've got an issue but are scared to reach out? I just honestly would say I did not think I would ever get better, ever. And when I was in that really bad state, you see no way out and trust me I was there wherever you are listen to this I was where you are at any point in your journey even at the worst point it was but you can get better and there's always hope and that's the only thing and I'll just say just try things don't listen to what people are telling you unless you know it's going to help you do you know what I mean don't force it on yourself like take your time with it it's not going to get better straight away, but it's the small things that make a difference. Just make a little change. It doesn't have to be a direct change to how, what you're doing, right? Like, oh, I've got to stop doing my hair for half an hour, do it for 20 minutes. Maybe just try something else, right? Maybe try going to the gym, maybe do sleep. Like, I've been there and just trust me, whatever position you're in, there is hope. And that's probably the most important message. God, Danny, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation and I hope it's the first of many. Thank, Thank you for being so open. Of course, always. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.